are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Well, good morning, Sojourn Fairfax. It's a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Josh, and I met Justin and Amy a few years ago. They're a few years further along in ministry, and I just want you to know how big of a blessing your pastor and his wife have been to me and my wife and ultimately to our church. You have a big-time gift in Justin and Amy that I'm sure you're grateful for just as we are. Guys, they are baller dancers. If you have never seen them bust a move, you need to ask them to. They are legit the best cha-cha sliders I have ever seen, for real. Uh, I wish I could introduce you to my family today. Uh, my beautiful wife, Miriam, and then I have Eden, Eliana, Eveline, and Eleanor. So if you're doing the math there, we got stuck on girls, four girls, and then each of them uh, have E uh, to start their name. So we got four girls and four E's in our family. We love them. They keep us hopping. We're grateful for them. About six and a half years ago, we moved to the Philadelphia area to help plant a church, and there's been a lot of twists and turns since then, but about three years ago, I came on staff at Trinity Community Church in a suburb just north of the city called Abington. Uh, three plus years now here at Trinity, and we've, we've uh, enjoyed every moment, a lot of challenges, but the Lord's been kind and good, and through our affiliation with Sojourn Network is how we were able to meet Justin and Amy at a couple different functions. I opened up your website this morning just before filming this sermon for you, and I prayed for you all. I prayed that God would just would blow your expectations for what he's already doing there at Sojourn and what he's going to do, especially on the other side of this uh, pandemic that we are in right now. I prayed fervently that the gospel would be proclaimed mightily inside the walls of wherever you gather there in Fairfax, and I pray that it would be proclaimed mightily and lived out uh, beautifully inside your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your community. Uh, we're grateful partners from afar in this gospel work that uh, we have been privileged to carry out by our King, King Jesus. Will you pray with me? And then we will jump into John chapter 7. Oh Lord, I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts this morning be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Just real quick before I start, somehow, of all the texts in John, I got assigned the one about circumcision. So I want to thank you very much for that, Justin. Thank you so much. Anyway, my kids do not understand the concept of commercials. In the few times that they've had to encounter the severe trial of commercials, I've been met with looks that seem to communicate, uh, what is the meaning of this three-minute break between different scenes in my show? What's, what's going on with this? Kids in the Netflix age, I don't think are ever going to have to grapple with the frustration of commercials in any kind of consistent way. But in our house, live sporting events are about the only time anymore that we have to suffer through this trial of commercials. And about every two years, I experience a particularly hated, uh, heated and hated frustration with these commercials during an election season, and we have one fast approaching, as I'm sure you're aware. It's frustrating because in literal back-to-back -back commercials, you can hear that one candidate is the savior of the state, and then not 10 seconds later, 
you're hearing that that same candidate is going to be the demise of the state. That he hates his wife, that he makes his kids eat dirt, and that he spits in his grandkids' faces. It's hard to know what the truth is. How can this be? Why is there such a wide disparity between opinions of the same man or woman? It's because everyone sees what they want to see, and they ignore what they don't want to see. Well, I think today's text in John 7 produces similar results for what people's perspective was on Jesus. There are widely different responses to him. Everyone has their own judgment, but what is critical for you and I this morning is that we come out judging Jesus rightly, making the right judgment, else we're going to miss the actual Jesus. We don't want to miss the actual Jesus. He's a life-saving message for us this morning. So this morning, it is my prayer and my hope that we don't see what we want to see, but we see the Jesus that actually is. There's nothing better. No one like Jesus. Well, the text in John 7 opens up about six months after the last scene that we encountered in John chapter 6. And Jesus did some crazy stuff and spoke some crazy words in that episode. And when the people heard these really hard words, it was too much for them. They turned their backs. Jesus had gone too far, and so they left. Almost all of them left. It got so bad, in fact, that Jesus even asked his 12 closest friends. He's like, hey, y'all want to leave too? Well, Jesus' brothers think they have a plan to get Jesus' fame train back on track. And that's where we're jumping into the story today in in John 7. Look at verse 4, if you will. If you do these things... If you do all these miracles, in other words, show yourself to the world, they say. And so they have a perfect plan for Jesus to resurrect his fame. This scene unfolds with Jesus' brothers readying themselves to make the trek to Jerusalem for what was called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast meant it was time to party. This eight-day, all-day festival was the grand finale of the Hebrew calendar. Think like our Christmas, New Year's type time. It was in late September, early October. And the festival was super cool, if you're into camping, which I happen to not be into camping. But throughout the week, the Israelites would build these temporary booths, or tabernacles, or tents. And throughout the entirety of the festival, they would live in them. And they would uh, help them remember how God had protected them during and eventually rescued them from their wilderness wanderings when they were in constant need of resurrecting shelters to protect them from the elements when they were there in the wilderness. So all around, down dark alleyways, on top of flat rooftops, and in the town square were hundreds and thousands of these little tents. Everybody came back into town for this festival. It must have been quite the sight. This was the most festive of all the feasts, too. There weren't just things to see, there were things to smell. The list of the sacrifices for the Feast of Booze, you can find this in Numbers 28 and 29, is much longer than all the other festivals. I mean, it would have been heaven for all of you meat smokers out there. So this is why these disciples, specifically Jesus' brothers, are encouraging Jesus to join them at this festival. The dense crowds would provide the maximum opportunity for Jesus to capitalize on his impact. This was a chance for Jesus once again to leverage his fame. Maybe they wanted to cash in on his fame, I'm not sure, but it's clear that Jesus doesn't think too highly of their plans. And Jesus' brothers aren't the only ones who misjudge Jesus and his motives here. There are others that we'll get to. But if I could just jump inside of a time machine and go tell all these people something, I'd say, look, 
Don't make yourself the judge of Jesus. Don't assume you know who he is and what he wants. If you want to know Jesus, you have to see him accurately. Well, I want to encourage all of us this morning to do this too. I think the central idea of our text is found there in verse 24, if you look at it. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. If you want to know Jesus rightly, you have to judge him rightly. That's the central idea of our text this morning. And first of all, we see Jesus' brothers wrongly judging his motives. They wrongly judge his motives. So they've completely misjudged who Jesus was. And you can see that in how their motivations varied from Jesus' motivations. They were like, Jesus, now's your chance. Rearrest the limelight. And Jesus probably just kind of sits there and shakes his head and says, guys, it's not the limelight I'm worried about. It's not prestige or power or fame or even influence. The reason I go to this festival or don't go has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with the Father's appointed times for me. I move and act and go when he tells me to. When I first preached this sermon to my church a couple years ago, it was early November, and I told my people that we had a secret to tell, to tell our kids on November the 26th. Only I didn't tell them what the secret was. We were waiting very intentionally to deliver the secret on that November 26th day. It was a really good secret. It was totally going to be met with uh, shrieks and uh, astonished, unreserved, joyful shouts. But we waited. We could have told them earlier, much earlier, months earlier, but we waited. We waited because of what we wanted to avoid. Questions related to when, how much longer, how many more days will it be until the surprise happens? We were waiting strategically. Well, this kind of strategic waiting is exactly what we find Jesus doing here. He's got this tremendous surprise to unveil about his true identity and what he's here to do. There's this story to tell, but he's, he's waiting, waiting for the appointed time from his father. Clearly here, man's ways are not God's ways. Jesus' brothers thought, maximize your impact. Jesus thought, maximize your dependence and wait. Well, Jesus' brothers don't have a godly concern here. They have a, a worldly one. This is what Jesus is pointing out there in verse 7. Take a look. The world can't hate you, Jesus says. Now, why is that? Well, in the, in, uh, in the Gospel of John, the word world is almost always a reference to the system of humanity that is in rebellion to God. So what Jesus is saying here is that their fondness for the world is demonstrating that they are a part of of the world. The world told them that acclaim and fame and power is the real deal. It's the ideal life's pursuit. But Jesus said that his father's will was his only pursuit. Is it any wonder then that the world doesn't hate them, but hates him? You see that in verse 7. It's because they have fallen in love with the world and they are part of its system. And he's living in contrary to that system. Why does our society always try to debunk Jesus or the Bible? Why are there constantly shows on the History Channel or articles in magazines on the rocks or <laughs> on the racks or blog posts? Magazine on the rock, please. That's strange. Um, or blo blog posts that are hell-bent on mythologizing Jesus. Why is that? Why are they so, so ferociously opposed to Jesus? Because he calls them out. He calls us out. He tells us that we are evil and that we need a savior. 
I mean, who wants to hear that message? You're bad and you need help. It's not a popular message. And it wasn't so much Jesus' miracles, the good stuff that he did, that got him into trouble. It was his words. And it's going to be the same for us, Christian. You being a good citizen, man, that's not going to get you hated. We should be good citizens. Your jokes and your gifts won't make some of your friends or co-workers hate you, that you should have jokes and you should give gifts. Do you know what will get you hated? Telling that friend over coffee that they are a sinner and that they need a savior. Those are hard words. If all we ever do is build bridges with our gifts and our wits, we're not going to be hated like Jesus was. And we're not going to be living the life that he's called us to live. Hatred comes when you say, you're a sinner. You fall short and you need a savior. And if you don't get saved, there is hell to pay. They hated Jesus' message. Now, Jesus obviously wasn't as eager to get to the feast as his brothers were because he was waiting on his father. So he says, look, I'm not coming, by which I think he means I'm not coming yet, not until my father tells me. So I don't think there's any deceit or misdirection. In fact, I know there's not any deceit or misdirection coming from Jesus here because it's not as if Jesus was afraid to die. That's clear throughout the rest of the gospel. He wasn't. He knew he was born to die. He was just waiting for the proper time to go public about who he was and what he is here to do and then die. Jesus' brothers want to seize the moment. But Jesus is showing that seizing the moment, more often than not, happens in moments of quiet dependence, waiting on the Father to direct our steps. Well, Jesus' brothers weren't the only ones who misjudged him here. Second this morning, the crowd misjudged his identity. His brothers uh, misjudged his motives, and the crowd misjudged his identity. Well, Jesus stuck around in Galilee for a few more days, even as his brothers left. Then eventually Jesus went, and there in Jerusalem, the crowds were waiting for him. Jesus is already the talk of the town before he even gets there. If you see it, uh, you can see it there in verse 11. We see the Jewish leaders searching for him, and not like nonchalantly either. They are diligently, really looking. Where is Jesus? They want to corner him. Earlier in John, we found out that they actually want to kill him already. Well, at any rate, Jesus isn't just the talk of the town for the leaders. He's the talk of the entire town, not just the religious. Look at verse 12. There were all these mutterings going on about him. The crowd couldn't land on any kind of consensus about who Jesus really was and what they thought about him. Some people in verse 12 were saying, ah, he's, he's a good man while others were saying, ah, he's leading people astray. You couldn't go anywhere in the city without overhearing these hushed conversations, talking about this man, Jesus, about who he truly was. Well, Jesus gets there a few days into the feast, maybe like three or four days in, and he makes his way to the temple and begins teaching. And, and just a quick aside, a quick heads up here, this next section is a little challenging. It, it wouldn't have been as challenging for the people in Jesus' day, his, his audience, especially in the temple there in John 7. It would have been more normal conversation for them, but it's outside of our normal experience, so just buckle up with me for a minute here. The first thing that you'll notice in verse 15 is that the people are marveling at what Jesus is teaching. They're marveling because it's truth, and they're marveling because he's dissecting the truth easily without any kind of training. He hadn't gone to seminary, and yet he knows all this stuff. It's mind-boggling to them. And Jesus responds to this marveling in verse 16 by saying, 
look, my teaching isn't mine. I didn't, I didn't get this from me. He gave this to me. The, the Father gave this to me. You're not thinking rightly about me and who I am. My Father is God. Don't marvel. This message is from the Father. Change how you think. Judge me rightly. Now, Jesus isn't being a punk here. He's actually being merciful. He's correcting their wrong thinking about him so that hopefully it will compel them to throw all of their hopes onto him. It's actually a merciful correction here. He didn't have to correct anyone. He didn't need to engage in this debate, but he did. And we should all view this as a special mercy from God. And here's Jesus' basic argument in verses 19 to 24. There are three premises here. Premise one, he says, look, you guys are accusing me of disregarding Moses' commands. All the while, you're claiming to love Moses, and yet you're guilty of one of his biggest deals. He says, you want to murder me because of what I'm teaching. To which they respond, Psh, you're possessed. We never said that. But they did, and you can confirm that by quickly flipping back in your Bible to chapter 5, verse 18. His premise is this, that they, are, they themselves are blatantly disregarding Old Testament law by trying to kill him. Murder, that's one of God's big deals, right? This alone proves that they are the lawbreakers and not Jesus. That's premise one. Premise two. Second premise is that they, they're the hypocrites and they can't even see it. In verse 21, he says, I did one work and you guys marvel. You go crazy. And he's referring back to the last time that he was in Jerusalem there, hanging out in the city. He was there for another feast. And at that time, he healed a man on the Sabbath. And he told him to get up, to take his bed up and, and walk. You probably remember that story. Well, according to their religious tradition, not the scriptures, but their tradition, this little command of Jesus pushed him over, pushed them over the edge. You see, this man wasn't allowed to pick up his bed, according to them. Jesus defied the tradition in pursuit of the truth and in pursuit of wholeness for this man who had never walked. And now Jesus is about to turn the screws up on him even more. He says in verses 22 and 23, Look, you guys circumcise because God in the scriptures told you to. Now, circumcision was a rite uh, instituted before Moses gave the Ten Commandments. That's what he means there in the parentheses there. If you look at verse 22, that's what he's talking about. So in a way, circumcision superseded the law of Moses because it came before the law of Moses. Because it came first, it in some sense had precedence over the Sabbath law that came years later in the Ten Commandments. But, Jesus says, but you still circumcise on the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath day was a day of mandatory rest. But Jesus is saying that they would willingly intrude on that Sabbath law in order to obey the other law of circumcision. And I really don't think that Jesus has a problem with the application here. I mean, that baby boy and his mama couldn't control on what day he was born, right? So if the eighth day after he was born just happened to be a Sabbath, well, they were in a conundrum, weren't they? What do they do? Do they circumcise? Or do they forsake the law of circumcision and do it on the seventh day or the ninth day? Which one, which law do they break and which law do they keep? Well, Jesus seems to indicate, I think here, that circumcising on the Sabbath was the right application. But here's where Jesus is taking this in verse 23. He's saying, now, if y'all can circumcise one particular body part on the Sabbath, you're telling me that I can't make the whole body well 
on the Sabbath? This doesn't make any sense, Jesus is saying. Why is, your why is your intrusion, Jesus is saying, why is your intrusion on the Sabbath for circumcision lawful and better, more holistic intrusion than my intrusion on the Sabbath? Healing a whole man's body versus that one body part on little boys that circumcision deals with. How does it make sense that your intrusion is okay and mine isn't? That's the second premise, third premise. Old Testament Jews viewed circumcision, ironic as it might seem, they viewed it as a perfecting rite. It was something that fixed the problem. Whatever your view may be on circumcision, medically or philosophically, this was the Jewish view. I'd like to take this moment again to thank Justin for assigning me this text. The Jews viewed this practice as perfecting one particular body part. So Jesus is picking up on this idea in verse 23 where he says, that he made this man's whole body well. Not just one body part, but the whole body was brought wholeness. So Jesus is saying that circumcision wasn't just a physical action, but it was pointing to something deeper, a deeper reality. Circumcision was just a, a, just a whisper, a down payment of sorts, a promise of an even greater perfecting that was coming, a greater wholeness. The day when God would make our entire persons whole through Jesus, through the blood of his son. Circumcision, perfecting one body part, was a promise of when God would make the whole man perfect through the life, death, and victorious resurrection of the Son of God. And so Jesus is saying, listen to me, I am the fulfillment of that sign of circumcision. The whole promise of circumcision was fulfilled in me. What that right promised, what circumcision promised, I'm delivering on, Jesus is saying. Far from being a law breaker, I am the law fulfiller in the ultimate sense. The Jews, they just looked at the surface. Verse 24, they judged by appearances, but Jesus is saying, there's more here, guys. There's so much more here. Listen to me. Judge me rightly. Come to me. Stop looking at your own performance. Stop looking to yourselves and look to me instead. So what are we to make of this this morning? I don't think any of us are so much wrestling with these particular issues anymore, be it Sabbath or circumcision, but we all still do wrestle a little bit with what to do with Jesus. Many of us here today would affirm that Jesus is legit God with rights over us, but functionally our actual living tells a different story, doesn't it? There's no drive to, to be in the word and be formed by it. No real commitment to being with Jesus' people week to week. No deep hunger and thirst for holiness and righteousness. Sojourn Fairfax, can I encourage each of you this morning to not be just theoretically needy for Jesus, but to be functionally needy, demonstrating in your day-to-day, moment-by-moment dependence. Look, when you're searching for answers to something complex or troubling, sometimes it's gonna take grit and work and research. Hard work to discern, it takes hard work to discern God's answers sometimes. Sometimes we'll see the answers like we see a street sign in the distance through fog, really difficult to make out what it's saying. But if you judge life rightly, all of your life, you'll know that Jesus has the answers. So let me encourage us this morning. Don't just judge by appearances, like Jesus says here. Make right judgments, thoughtful judgments. 
Let God make the final judgment over any scenario or choice or theology or move or job change or spouse or purchase or whatever. Jesus gets final say. This is why the Lord's, in the Lord's Prayer we pray things like, Your will be done, not mine. God's will is best even if by human appearances we don't quite understand how or why. I heard one pastor say, Creators say, my way. Created ones say, your way. That should be our heart's desire as created ones. Your way, O oh God, your will. Look, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So instead, this morning, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He'll make them straight. So I ended this sermon to my people by reminding them about our secret that we were waiting on delivering until November 26th. Then, since my kids were downstairs in our Trinity Kids classes, I told them that I'd tell them what the secret was on November the 27th. The word of God isn't so cruel, though. Jesus waited on the Father in John 7, but in the end, the mystery was finally solved. We didn't have to keep waiting. Here's the secret, okay? Here's what Jesus was waiting to unveil, even in John 7. Jesus was God, come in the flesh to redeem his people by living the life we had no hope of living, dying the death that we deserve to die, and then triumphantly rising from the dead so that all who place their hope and trust in him might be saved from God's wrath, ensure eternal judgment, and instead be given glorious life with Jesus and his church. Some of us need to put our faith in Christ today to judge him rightly for who he truly is and humbly trust him. But there's an ironic truth here, Sojourn, and I want us all to hear it as we close. There's an ironic truth. These people in John 7 are like super religious people. They were part of a world system, still as religious people, that actually, in reality, hated God. This means... For you and I, it is possible to love obedience, to love morality, to love goodness in place of God and not because of God. It was these religious leaders' wealth of morality, it was their wealth of morality that was preventing their entrance into the kingdom. Don't let your wealth of morality be your hindrance into the kingdom. Don't set yourself up as judge over Jesus. This morning, don't look to your performance, your bank account, your morality to see if you're judging rightly. Those aren't indicators. Instead, look to Jesus. So you've got two options this morning. When you draw your final breath on this earth, you can either die as judge of Jesus, over Jesus, arrogantly ignoring his mercy and his teaching, or you can be judged in Jesus. For all those who are judged in Jesus, there is no condemnation. Because God makes his final judgment, when God makes his final judgment of you, you don't want your performance to be his measuring stick. You want Jesus' performance to be your measuring stick. You want to be judged in Jesus. This morning, if you're not sure if your life reflects that you're living as judge of Jesus or you're going to be judged in Jesus, I know the pastors of Sojourn there would love to speak with you about that. Or if you want to make the trek up to Philly, we can split a cheesesteak and talk shop. Would love to talk with you about the Lord and the gospel. What do you argue with Jesus about? Whatever that is, lay it down at the feet of the king. 
Jesus has really hard words for us sometimes. But these hard words come with heavenly plans. If you want to know Jesus rightly, you've got to judge him rightly. Lord, we want to see you for who you really are. Spirit of God, would you help us do this? For the glory of your Son, for the good of our souls, for the good of our communities, for the good of the world, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up. Help us hang on until the end, even as you hang on to us until the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace, Sojourn. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. Thank you.